A low sodium diet would be about 2,000 milligrams of sodium. And if you look at the few remaining hunter-gatherers in the world, in fact, their sodium intakes are extremely low. One serving of Campbell's soup is 1,000 milligrams. So if you have just one serving of soup, you've already had half of your sodium intake on a low sodium diet. And in my experience, where we were doing 24-hour urines on people just to kind of see how much sodium they were eating, typically it's like five to 7,000 milligrams of sodium on average. Human OS, learn. Master. Achieve. Many believe that a modern contributor to chronic disease in industrialized populations, in other words, people like you and me, is a mismatch between our current dietary patterns and our fundamental nutritional needs that were shaped over the slow course of human evolution. Some elements of this mismatch are pretty obvious, like the refinement of whole foods into purified ingredients, which are then reconstituted into delicious foods that have fantastic shelf lives. Simply put, for most of our time on this planet, as a species, such foods simply did not exist. But other dietary aspects of mismatch are more subtle, like shifts in the ratios of electrolytes, as well as the amount of acid precursors versus base precursors in the diet. But just because these changes are less obvious doesn't mean that they don't have a profound effect on our health, especially as we get older. That is why I'm pleased to have Linda Frasetto on the show today. Linda is a professor emeritus of medicine in the Division of Nephrology at the University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF. During her research career, she and her colleagues investigated regulation of acid-base balance in both healthy and older people as well as dietary influences on acid-base balance. In particular, she explored how the ratios of potassium to sodium, as well as base to chloride, differ in modern diet versus the ancestral diet, and how these changes may be linked to greater risk for chronic disease as we get older. It is thought that ancient hominids consumed far less sodium and far more potassium, and specifically more potassium alkali salts. The reduction in potential base in the modern diet increases the net systemic acid load, and this may take a physiological toll in myriad ways. Chronic acid load may play a role in osteoporosis, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and even age-related decline in growth hormone secretion. So why specifically is the contemporary diet so lopsided in this respect, at least relative to the ancestral condition? Which nutritional components determine whether a diet is net acid producing, and what can we do about it on an individual basis? To answer these questions, Linda, welcome to the show. And thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. That's great to hear. Tell us more about your background and your area of expertise. I am a kidney doctor, and as part of the things that kidneys do, one of the things they do is they decide how much sodium and potassium you need. So all kidney doctors need to know about sodium and potassium. And then another thing the kidneys do is they get rid of extra acid or bicarbonate, and they're the final arbiters of the actual acid-base balance in the body. And therefore, anybody who does kidney medicine needs to know something about this. 
but what we studied was not so much what happens in people with advanced kidney failure, where we know there are problems, but what happens in people who are healthy, but maybe otherwise older, who have some decline in their kidney function just because they're older. And does that make a difference? If over decades, does it matter when you're 50, 60, or 70 years old if you've spent decades eating a high acid diet and maybe you weren't getting rid of all of the acid that was in your system? So that's really what we looked at. Let's talk about how much people are currently consuming and how this then contrasts with the ancestral intake. How much potassium, for example, do we consume now? And how much did we consume back in the day? Let me just switch around. And first, let's talk about sodium. Okay. And the reason I want to do that is because natural foods contain very little sodium chloride. And therefore, that means that almost all the sodium chloride in our diet, that's table salt, we add, okay? It's a preservative. We like the way it tastes. So we eat a lot of salt. In fact, if you try to put somebody on a low salt diet, it's really difficult because not only do you have to tell them not to add salt to their food, but they actually need to look at all of the foods that they're eating. And when they go to the supermarket, if it's been processed in any way, they need to look to see how much sodium is on the label. It's really hard to avoid sodium in our diets. So everybody, unless you are really, really trying hard, is going to be eating a lot more sodium. So it's really difficult to avoid. That means if you talk about the ratio of potassium to sodium in the modern diet, you automatically start out with there's more sodium in the diet. Yeah. And then let's go to potassium. Potassium is an intracellular ion. There's a lot of potassium, especially in many types of fruits and vegetables. Although again, it's found inside of cells. So it's found inside of everything. For example, in the patients that we try to put on a low potassium diet, and these are people with advanced kidney failure, we tell them to specifically limit things like tropical fruits and tomatoes and potatoes and legumes, things that particularly contain a lot of potassium. And yet, if you're telling people that if in the hunter-gatherer diet they ate anything that they could find and they ate a lot of plant foods, then pretty much automatically they would eat a lot of potassium. And then also, if you look at processed foods, most of those are made from grains, cereals or you know, whatnot, and those contain relatively low amounts of potassium. So when you look at percentage of calories in the American diet, a lot of those calories come from cereals and junk food. And so automatically, that's a low potassium content. If I'm remembering correctly, there was some statistic that was somewhat horrifying that 60% or 80% of calories come from grain-based desserts in the United States. Yeah, as opposed to, let's say, meat or fish or vegetables or fruits. Right. What is the recommended daily intake for potassium? And then what is the paleolithic intake? At least in the United States, it's 4,700 milligrams. And depending on 
what country you live in, at least in the United States, it's more about 3,000 milligrams that people take. And so very few people in the United States eat the recommended daily intake for potassium. I remember in our smoothie course that it was 1% to 3% of the United States actually is meeting this recommended daily intake, which is striking. And so that Paleolithic-style diet, how much potassium would you consume in that scenario? My old boss, Tony Sebastian, wrote a paper where he looked at percentages of foods that would have made up a, a paleo diet. And so it kind of depends on the percentages, like are you getting more of a percentage from plant foods as opposed to animal foods? But it was about three times as much as in the American diet on average. That's looking at all the different types of diets together. If we switch back to sodium, what is the estimate for the paleolithic intake there? And then what is the RDI, recommended daily intake? Recognizing that there's very little sodium chloride in raw foods and assuming that the paleo people were eating unprocessed foods, then it would be closer to six or 700 milligrams of sodium. So if you say, what's a low sodium diet? Okay, a low sodium diet would be about 2,000 milligrams of sodium. So the paleo people were eating 25% of what we would consider to be a low sodium diet, so extremely low. And if you look at the few remaining hunter-gatherers in the world, in fact, their sodium intakes are extremely low. And if we then look at what are common modern intakes, it can be up to 7,000 milligrams in a day. Just look at the back of one can of soup. Exactly. So one servings of Campbell's soup is 1,000 milligrams. If you have just one serving of soup, you've already had half of your sodium intake on a low-sodium diet. And in my experience, where we were doing 24-hour urines on people just to kind of see how much sodium they were eating, typically it's five to 7,000 milligrams of sodium on average. That was the typical people that we were looking at. Okay, so there is conversation about lowering sodium in the diet and its benefits on health, but do we actually see health benefits in raising potassium intake as opposed to simply lowering sodium in the diet? There's two studies that I particularly like when you look at that. So the first one is the DASH sodium diet. Yeah. Where they did this really, really great study where they started out, they looked at three levels of sodium intake, 3,000 milligrams, 2,000 milligrams, and 1,000 milligrams. And then they looked at increasing the amount of fruits and vegetables, so more potassium inside of each of these three sodium groups. And so they could show that even on the higher sodium diets, just eating more fruits and vegetables lowered blood pressure. So lowering the sodium lowered the blood pressure and eating more fruits and vegetables independently lowered the blood pressure. I think people would probably have an easier time raising potassium intake than lowering sodium intake. Absolutely, positively. 
I spend a lot of time with my renal failure patients trying to convince them that they should lower their sodium intakes. I have a lot of experience on how difficult it is to try to get people, and these are people who actually have medical reasons for doing this, like how hard it is to get them to do this. You have to make a conscious decision each and every time you decide to eat something to eat a low-sodium diet. Right. It's like having diabetes. Same idea. Is there any data that you're aware of where there are paradoxes? high-sodium diet, but doesn't seem to end up with the complications that you're well aware of in terms of impact on longevity and health? Now, that's a really good question. And I'm going to turn again to the DASH data. So when they broke down their data by gender and by race and by whether or not people already had high blood pressure, they could see that you had more of an effect for people who already had high blood pressure than for people who didn't. They had more of an effect for the African-Americans who are on the diet compared to the Caucasians. So there appear to be other factors that make a difference in how much of an effect you get from this. So yes, I think that it's a factor. It's not necessarily the only factor. Genetics certainly plays a difference, as well as, I'm just going to put in a plug here for lifestyle. Please do. I don't think that just doing one thing in isolation is necessarily the only answer. It's one of the reasons why I'm interested in the ancestral health movement because it looks at things like how much sleep do you get and how much exercise do you do and how well are you taking care of stress and on top of what kinds of diets do you eat. Our modern lifestyle is bad for our health and so in order to try to live a healthier lifestyle you have to do a whole bunch of different things and diet is one of them. The fact is, the more we are doing well across other domains, the more we'll be protected in the face of imperfection in other areas. Right. And when it comes to diet, I mean, nobody is going to be able to do this 100%. I run some studies where we're trying to get people to switch their diet for many months on end. And what we tell people is, do the best you can try to do this most of the time. If sometimes you go out to dinner and you know you eat something that's totally wrong, well, okay, so that's just one time. If you can do it most of the time, that's better than not doing it any of the time. So yeah. yes, I think that a little touch of reality in here is also very helpful in terms of following diets. Do you have any salt replacement tips how do you add to the flavor of your food without adding more salt? So with the caveat that with advanced renal failure, you have to be very careful about your potassium intake. And most of the things that I do are potassium-based supplements. So mm -hmm. herbs or lemon juice or garlic. I cook with vegetable juices like V8 or carrot juice and wine instead of oil. Most of the things that I do to try to make things taste more flavorful and not use salt is all related to herbs and things that are high in potassium. Let's switch gears here to acid load. Tell us about some of the determinants of a net acid-producing diet. 
What can people do with their diets to minimize diet-induced acidosis or the increase in hydrogen ions throughout the body? So now let's tie the potassium and the sodium to the acid-base component of the diet. So yeah, please. the acid part of table salt is the chloride. Sodium is not an acid, but the chloride is definitely an acid. So if you're eating sodium chloride, not only are you getting the sodium load, but you're getting the acid load in the chloride. And similarly, if you're eating a high potassium diet, especially if you're getting the potassium from fruits and vegetables, the anion in that, and these are salts, okay, so chloride is a salt and in table salt, that's the anion in the salt. But in fruits and vegetables, the anions are often alkalized, so citrate, malate, things that are metabolized to bicarbonate. So when you eat a high potassium diet, especially a high fruits and vegetable diet, you're also eating a high alkali intake. So you can see that it now ties in. You eat a lot of table salt. You eat very few fruits and vegetables. You are automatically eating in a high acid, low base diet. Then the real question is, can your body get rid of the extra acids that you're eating? And if you read the nephrology textbooks, for example, they said that, yes, absolutely, the functioning kidneys could get rid of all the extra acid and you didn't have any problems whatsoever. If you're young and your kidneys work particularly well, I believe that's true. The problem is, is that kidney function declines with age. So once you're about two or three and you have all the nephrons in your kidneys, it starts to go down from there. So what that means in terms of how I look at it, once you're starting to be like 40, 50, 60, 70, you've actually lost a fair amount of kidney function. If you're now eating a high net acid diet all the time, net meaning a lot more acid intake than alkali intake, can your kidneys really get rid of all of that acid? And it's been shown that if you eat a really high acid diet, although your kidneys can get rid of most of the acid, it can't get rid of all of the acid. And so you end up with an acid balance that's just a little bit higher than it would be if you weren't eating all that extra acid. And when I say a little bit higher, this is still within the range that we consider to be normal, but it's still a higher net acid balance. I use the word balance particularly because this means that after all the factors are taken into account and the body has done everything it can do in order to be able to get rid of everything that it doesn't want, you're still ending up with a little bit more acid in your system. And then the question really becomes, so what? Does this make any difference? This is extremely hard to investigate because what we're talking about are these very small differences that occur over decades. We know that in advanced kidney failure, where you absolutely cannot get rid of the acid, and now the acid levels are outside of the range of normal, we can show in those people that in fact the acids are actually making the kidneys deteriorate even faster, are damaging the bones, are causing the muscles to deteriorate. And we extrapolate 
from that, that in people who are just eating a high acid diet and who maybe are older, maybe some of the things that we say are due to age, like age-related decline in muscle mass or age-related decline in bone mass. Maybe it's not age that's doing that. Maybe it's the little bit of extra acid that's always been in the system for decades and decades and decades. And could that be a factor in what we're saying is due to getting older? Do you have any insights into if a high acid producing diet can accelerate the aging process or does it just become particularly problematic as the aging process occurs and we can no longer handle that balance as well as we could before? Well, this is actually something that we're looking at now because these days we have a little bit more of an insight into some specific factors related to aging like telomere length and Clotho levels. Telomeres are at the ends of DNA, and there's been studies that show that as you get older, the number of telomeres decrease, and the enzyme that puts more telomeres on goes down. The fewer telomeres you have and the less enzyme you have, the faster the cells age. Similarly, there's this molecule called clotho. In animals that overexpress clotho, they live longer. And right you do experiments where you delete the clotho gene, those animals die more rapidly of a disease that looks very similar to aging. Mm. So now we have some very specific things that we can look at that we can say, well, does factor X affect clotho or does factor Y affect telomeres? So this is actually something that we're interested in, but do I have any results yet? No, I mean, we're literally doing some studies now. Clotho has become an interesting subject in the aging community. Unity Bioscience, which is a biotechnology company focused on the aging process, has made Clotho a part of their development program. I know you're looking at this now, but tell us more about what Clotho is. Clotho is really, well, it's complicated, number one. It has more than one form. So there's one form where it's a membrane-bound cofactor for something called FGF23, which is a molecule which is related to phosphate intake and excretion in the kidneys. And so there's a membrane-bound form. And when the FGF23 interacts with the membrane-bound form of clotho, part of the clotho molecule breaks off floats off to the kidneys where it affects how proximal tubules in the kidneys reabsorb phosphate. When you eat a high phosphate diet, you make more FGF23, which goes to the membrane-bound clotho and the FGF23 receptor. The soluble clotho breaks off. It goes to the kidneys. It prevents the kidneys from reabsorbing the phosphate that you just ate. You dump the phosphate in the urine and you go back into phosphate balance. And phosphates are important because that's another type of acid. So inability to excrete phosphorus means that you're maintaining a higher phosphate balance in the body, so therefore also a higher acid balance. Although phosphates have a number of other effects, not the least of which is that they can complex with calcium molecules and in kidney failure, 
those calcium phosphate complexes deposit in the blood vessels and the soft tissues and can cause a lot of damage to the tissues. So high phosphate is bad for you with kidney failure in a lot of ways. Great answer. Cola, if I'm not mistaken, is high in phosphate. And high in phosphates, yes. Phosphatyric acid. It's used as a preservative in all soft drinks that you can't see through, like colas. Again, phosphate is another thing that we limit in kidney failures. One of those things where we have to have a pretty good idea of what to tell our patients what not to eat. We also think about salt intake causing high blood pressure. Do we think that it is the acidosis or the chloride, in fact, that is what's causing the higher blood pressure? My old colleague, Curtis Morris, has looked at this in some detail. He believes that you have to separate out the potassium, the sodium, the chloride, and the alkali, Mm -hmm. and that they're independent factors, and that some people are more responsive to sodium, and some petite people are more responsive to potassium, and some people are more responsive to chloride, and some people are more responsive to alkali. And that would make sense if you look at, let's say, receptors in the kidneys, because there are specific receptors for all of these things. Any change in the function of a specific receptor would change the ability of the body to respond to that ion. I think that it makes a lot of sense physiologically that, in fact, people might be more responsive to one thing or another. In his rat studies, he was able to show that, in fact, it made a difference if you used the chloride ion as opposed to the bicarbonate ion. Now, whether that's the effect of the acid, I don't know the answer to that one, but since we believe that the acids are bad for the kidneys, and what we're talking about here is a lot of what's happening inside the kidneys, Yes, possibly. There's an acid effect on high blood pressure and kidney function, which is tied to high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. as well as with the potassium and the sodium. And let me just talk a little bit more about kidney failure and high blood pressure. Please. In general, as kidney function declines, your blood pressure goes up. And so this is particularly true once you get to advanced kidney failure, where you're only down to about 30% of kidney function, because then you have problems getting rid of fluid, like water. And because you have more fluid in your system, you have more pressure in your system, and therefore the pressure, the blood pressure goes up. I think that all of these things are tied together, but for specific people, might one thing be more important than the other? My guess is yes. We do have potential ways to ameliorate that. One possible way is with bicarbonate, which we can take supplementally. There is sodium bicarbonate, and there's also potassium bicarbonate. What are your thoughts on that as a supplement? Sodium bicarbonate is baking soda. If you wanted to take sodium bicarbonate, you could remember that you're taking in a high sodium load. And there are some very specific reasons to think that sodium might be bad for your blood pressure. There's other studies that suggest that you don't have as much of a rise in blood pressure if you take sodium as sodium bicarb compared to sodium as sodium chloride. On the other hand, it doesn't taste particularly good. Potassium bicarbonate There's a limit to how much you can buy over the counter without a prescription because 
to the general public, we don't want people to be able to take in large amounts of potassium if they don't know whether or not they have kidney failure or are on some very specific medications. So you're not really allowed to get very much potassium as, let's say, a potassium bicarbonate supplement over the counter. Do I actually believe that you should be taking these as supplements? No. I think that we do that when we are limited in telling people whether or not to get these things as real food. One, we evolved eating real food and not supplements. And two, you know, when you eat fruits and vegetables, you're eating a high fiber content and there are specific reasons to think that's good for you. There's a lot of trace minerals, which are also important, and antioxidants, which we haven't talked about oxidative stress, but it's another kind of stress besides acid stress, there's oxidative stress, and that's also bad for you. So I think that the benefits of getting potassium alkali from fruits and vegetables far outweigh actually getting them as a supplement. If I'm understanding correctly, you believe that a paleo-style diet is the way to go, given your knowledge here on kidney health and acid-base balance and sodium-potassium balance. Looked at from an acid-base point of view, I think that eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and not a lot of salt is good for you. Yes. Okay. So then the unknown, if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and some meats and fish and you're just following a normal paleo diet... Is there an additional benefit of adding a little bit of potassium bicarbonate to offset the fact that you might have a higher sodium intake? And the answer to that is unknown. Did you do some work with mice adding bicarbonate to their water and looking at renal function over time? My colleague Curtis Morris did studies where they gave potassium bicarb and potassium chloride and sodium chloride and sodium bicarb to rats and showed that the rats that specifically got the chloride had higher blood pressure, more decline in kidney function, more actual damage to the kidneys when looked at under the microscope and higher incidence of stroke. If you're saying that this is affecting the blood pressure, the blood pressure affects the blood vessels, so can cause damage to the brain and the heart and the kidneys. Whether there's also an acid effect in the kidneys, I think that that's probably true. And you didn't see as much of an effect when you gave either the potassium or the sodium as the bicarbonate. There are a lot of reasons why you want to be careful about taking these supplements. So having a high amount of potassium intake can be risky, mostly for people that have kidney disease. People who have kidney disease, people who are on some specific medications. I don't want to make a fuss out of this. I'm a kidney doctor, but I'm sort of against taking supplements as opposed to eating real food. I think that there has to be a specific reason why you have to take it as a supplement as compared to just eating more potassium. Yeah. It's really hard to eat, let's say, a huge amount of salad. So for example, in the studies that we did when we were feeding people the paleo diets, when we took the calories from junk food and we turned it into calories from fruits and vegetables, it was so much food, like just in terms of how much food there was, that we had to split it into six meals in order to keep their calorie content constant. It's actually really hard to eat a lot a really, really large amount of fruits and vegetables because it's just so much food. One of the reasons I was asking is because several shows ago, I spoke with Jeff Rothschild on a review paper that he published last year. 
in the paper, he reviewed the evidence for some of the best ergogenic or performance-enhancing supplements on the market. These were things like beta-alanine, caffeine, creatine, and also sodium bicarbonate. Athletes that take sodium bicarb have impressive performance-enhancing effect, and it's thought to delay acidosis during high-intensity efforts. Some people really do believe in it. There's a guy named Bob Mon who used to coach the British crew team, and he did a lot of experiments about 20 years ago, giving the crew team sodium bicarbonate to see if it improved performance. What we think with the bicarbonate is that it really is only effective in exercise that is producing a lot of lactic acid. So it wouldn't be noticeable for lower intensity efforts unless they are very long, like ultra endurance, but mostly for high intensity athletics and probably have a greater effect in less elite athletes. Right. And there's at least some data in older people that you might improve performance on things like sit to stand tests or some strength tests. I don't know the answer to that. It's something that they're looking at now to try to see if it makes a difference. On the other hand, if it prevents muscle breakdown, and the more muscle you have, the more exercise you can do, maybe those are tied together too. You mentioned the work you're going to be doing on Clotho. Is there other work that you are involved in that relates to these subjects? The other study that we're running is looking at the effects on polycystic ovarian syndrome because there's some evidence that if you're eating a lower acid diet, you can affect estrogen cyclic activity. That's theoretical, but we are actually looking at that. I've never heard of that connection before. That's very interesting. Linda, thank you for joining me. I've been aware of your work for a long time, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. That's actionable, and it's also illustrative of the broader idea that we both espouse and believe in, which is that the paleo diet is a good diet to consider for how you eat in today's world. It aligns more broadly with methodologies for how to live generally in terms of light exposure and sleep, et cetera. Thanks for inviting me. I really do appreciate the chance to be able to talk about what I do. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.